on. This is a privilege. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is an honor to worship him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What a great God he is. I suppose if he hadn't done anything for you, it might be a little bit hard to get motivated to worship. But if you're here, he's done something for you. We used to sing a song years ago, he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. <clears throat> Praise God. Flying solo today. Sister Bruce just will not get over this cold that she has, this upper respiratory infection. I keep telling her to get better, but she's just not listening. And then she got mad at me the other day when I got out the Lysol spray and started spraying stuff down. <laughs> she said, Well, I cook your meals. I said, Well, I can't spray the food down with Lysol. So <laughs> I guess I could but I don't think it will have a very good flavor to it. So it is what it is. <clears throat> I'm glad to be with you today. I have always felt, as I feel still to this day after all these years, like Moses, when God told him that he was going to go back and, uh, to Egypt and speak to the people of God and to Pharaoh, and Moses kind of squirmed and said, I think you got the wrong guy always felt that he had the wrong guy, but he he won't listen to me as much as my wife will not listen to me. And so we stand before you today with only one goal in mind, and that is to do God's will and to be pleasing unto the Lord. There's been a lot of talk. Everybody's talking about the uh, <clears throat> coronavirus. I think there's no question that we are living in biblically prophetic times. Jesus said, when you see these things come to pass, or begin to come to pass, actually, you know that the end is near. Um, I think, in my mind, and I believe that I am right about this, that uh, during the last thousand years when man will be on the earth under the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, they will read about and they will talk about things that you and I are seeing come to pass in our lifetime. Just like we read and talk about things that came to pass in ancient times, they will read about these days, the concurring uh, events that are taking place today. So the coronavirus, what is it? It may be nothing. We have a neighbor, my next-door neighbor, his son, <coughs> excuse me, actually stepson, uh, his father and, and father's side of the family are Chinese, and so he was in China going to international business school, was home for the holidays, and Marcello just told me that Andrew is not going back to China because uh, the Chinese are not being um, upfront about the seriousness of this. They claim there's 42 deaths. There's thousands and thousands that are infected with this virus. So. It might be 
something that we have read about in the book of Revelation. And it might not be. Now, I want to get up in the morning and be ready to meet God whichever way it goes. <clears throat> now, I think it's a prophetic event. If nothing else, it is a warning to us that uh, it may disappear in a week or two or uh, you may be hibernating in your home. I don't know, but God knows. But there's another major prophetic event that's taken place. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but the... Uh, President of the United States has put together a proposed peace deal, peace treaty uh, between the Jewish people in Israel and Hamas and their surrounding neighbors. Everyone else has failed at this, but of course, Donald Trump wrote the book, The Art of the Deal. And if anybody can do it, he can. And I hope you realize that if he does, it will be what initiates the rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount side, and it will start seven years of tribulation. You think God cannot come today? You think it's impossible or inconceivable that the rapture could take place any day and any moment, my friend? We are living on the cusp of the coming of the Lord. And it amazes me that while we see all of these prophetic signs coming to pass, the Bible says that he's going to come in a time when ye think not. It's amazing to me that the disposition and attitude and spirit of the church is prophesied in Revelation at the time of his coming is one of complacency and apathy. You'd think it would be just the opposite, wouldn't it? Trying to get people to pray, trying to get people to be faithful, trying to get people to give according to the scriptural mandate. And yet it's predicted that when iniquity abounds, the love of many will wax cold. See, I'm not talking at you, I'm talking to us because I feel the same pressure to relax, lay back, take a chill pill. It's not that big a deal. Just just keep believing in Acts 2.38 and everything will be all right. And uh, I believe that those are lies to our soul. So I want to do my best today to preach to you a message I've never preached in my life in 43 years years of ministry. I've never preached a message so direct and candid as this, but uh, in obedience to the Lord, I want to direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> I cannot express how grateful that I am and others as well that we have paid off the mortgage of this building. <clears throat> there were many, 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 many months when we had no idea how we were going to pay that mortgage. But we were never, ever, even a day late. 
in all the years that we maintained that loan with Edison National Bank. And God deserves all the glory for that. And so it's no time to lay back. There are challenges ahead. And uh, by God's grace, we will meet every challenge the way we've met those in the past and see God do great things. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Everybody say it's a gift. Isaiah chapter 6, two verses of scripture, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Understand who this angel is talking to right now. He's talking to Isaiah, a courtroom preacher, a man highly gifted, called, and anointed of the Lord. And this angel has the audacity to say to him, thy sin is purged. Lord bless you. you may be seated. No one has ever discovered nor entered into the kingdom of God without first receiving the gift of God's grace. It's also true that while our kingdom citizenship is due to God's grace, no one ever maintained with any longevity at all their resident status within the kingdom of God without the many subcategories of gifts that are included within this incredible endowment. You might get in by the grace of God, but make no mistake about it, if you're going to stay in, it's going to take the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 and 8 says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Of the many parenthetical gifts found within God's amazing grace, we want to preach to you for a few minutes about one of those gifts. It is the gift of repentance. Well, you may wince at this. You may go, oh me, oh my. We're going to get beat up today. I don't think that's what is going to happen. But I need you to understand that within the gift of repentance, we find yet another gift. It is called the gift of forgiveness. And where would we be without the gift of forgiveness? If you opened up a Christmas present, and, uh, or maybe a card in this particular case, and you found enclosed a gift a certificate for a free root canal, how excited would you be? You get a letter in the mail and find out that your doctor is giving out gift certificates for free exams, except the problem is he is a colorectal doctor. 
Here again, not very excited. You wouldn't think of giving a 19-year-old a gift certificate for cataract surgery because they would have no need of it. And so we get a lot of gifts, don't we? In fact, I think that's one of the reasons we have two yard sales every year. <laughs> we have to put this stuff someplace. And what better than to sell it uh, for the ladies' department and give the money to uh, Tupelo Children's Mansion. So we get a lot of things that we don't need. But when it comes to this gift that I'm talking about today, the gift of repentance, every one of us, every one of us need the gift of repentance. If you're fortunate enough uh, to have obeyed Acts 2.38 salvation, and in case you are unclear to exactly what that is, I mean if you are fortunate enough to have repented of your sins, to have been baptized in water by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, and if you have received the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, there's no doubt that you are truly blessed. You were blessed. But when it comes to repentance, it is the gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So when conviction gripped the crowd on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached uh, to that crowd of people, they were prompted to ask men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? It's interesting to me that the first word out of Peter's mouth was not accept the Lord, was not believe on the Lord. The first word out of his mouth was repent. The first thing that they heard was the word repent. And I have to believe that he said that with conviction and that he said that with a certifiable anointing from the Holy Ghost. You see, repentance was the marquee message that was proclaimed by John the Baptist. The Bible says that when he baptized people in the Jordan River, he baptized them unto repentance. You didn't go to any of his revival meetings without hearing about the message of repentance. The message of repentance, however, did not die with him when he was beheaded by Herod, but was continued uh, to be heralded by Jesus Christ numerous times throughout his ministry, twice, in fact, in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus said, except ye repent. Ye shall all, everybody say all. Everybody say that includes me. Ye shall all likewise perish. We understand the seriousness and the eternal seriousness of perishing of that matter. So when the Apostle Paul preached to the Greeks on Mars Hill, he didn't mince words. He wanted to be straightforward and candid with them. And so he told them in Acts 17 and 30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I heard it said by Wayne Huntley at one of the, uh, one of the pastoral sessions at men's conference a number of years ago. 
He said that there are preachers and pastors and, and evangelists and, and God will uh, he'll tolerate their sin for just so long. And if they don't repent and get right with God, God just lets them go. He just lets them go. God once winked at sin. Of course, there were times when, when God looked at things a little bit different and he tolerated the ignorance of some people that did not know his word or did not understand his laws. But Paul came to the conclusion and told these uh, very astute men, very academic men, God once winked at that, but you better believe right now he's commanding all men, all men to repent. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the Lord. He was in Babylonian captivity to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Everybody say, I got to do it. James 4.17 says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. It doesn't matter if you never look at ungodly stuff, if you never read ungodly stuff, if you never say a cuss word, if you never hang around ungodly people. Ah, come on, there's the sins of omission. If you don't pray, if you don't give, if you don't worship, if you're not faithful. Not only to do it, but it says then to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra felt the call of God upon him to return to Israel and to Jerusalem. And not only seek God's law, but do the, God's law and then to teach God's law so that others would be righteous as well. So we have separated ourselves from this evil world and from the evil influences of the world. But I've got to tell you that we must also be faithful. Cornelius was about as righteous as they come as far as righteousness goes, but he had not yet obeyed the gospel and would have been lost without Peter's visit. So Ezra was called of God to depart from Babylon. You can't do this in Babylon. They don't have uh, Facebook and FaceTime and all this stuff. You've got to go back to Israel if you're going to fulfill this mission. And so he chose a group of priests and a group of Levites to which he would lead back to Jerusalem. And through them, they would reconstruct all of the aspects of the Mosaic law among the Hebrew people, not just ceremonial things, but also the moral aspects and the judicial aspects of the law. These men were carefully chosen according to their geolo genealogical record, and preparations were very carefully made for their departure from Babylon. Under the leadership of Ezra, these pilgrims began their journey, but before they even got out of Babylon proper, they stopped. Before they left the city limits of Babylon, they stopped for a time of consecration. It's written in the 8th chapter of Ezra, verse number 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. So after a time of consecration, they made their journey and eventually uh, entered into the outskirts of Jerusalem and finally into the city. But upon arriving there, he was confronted with a situation that he could not have planned for. 
he encountered a situation that he had not prepared for. We go to Ezra chapter 9 and begin in verse number 1. And I wanted you to read it from a biblical text, not just hear me tell you about it. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. I would say, isn't that what got you in trouble with God in the first place? Isn't that why the city was destroyed? And the entire nation was carried into captivity, except for a very small remnant that was left in the land. Isn't this the reason we have found ourselves in the predicament that we are in? And of course it was. Verse 2, for they have taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands, yea, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. It's getting pretty serious when you start pulling the hair out of your beard and you start pulling clumps of hair out of your scalp. Something is going on on the inside of a man that would cause him to do something that drastic. Verse 4, then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. I'm talking about repentance here today. The evening sacrifice would have been offered at 6 p.m. in the evening. We do not know how many hours that Ezra sat upon the ground grieving, how many hours he sat with ashes sprinkled upon his head, perhaps blood seeping out of the pores of his skin where he had yanked hair from his beard, garments torn, mantle torn. But it was probably for many hours. You see, sometimes you can't repent in five seconds. Sometimes to get rid of sin takes a little bit more than just, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Sometimes you got to get down to the nitty-gritty. Sometimes you got to get serious with God to break the dominion that sin has upon your life. Verse 5, at the evening sacrifice, he said, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. That's confusing, isn't it? He got up. And just a moment later, he fell back down. 
because after many hours of sitting in humble, self-effacing disbelief, Ezra stands up. At the same time, he rises up from his heaviness. He sees they're getting ready to offer the evening sacrifice. And immediately, he fell again. He prostrated himself again upon the ground. He spread out his hands unto the Lord. Why did he fall back to the ground? What caused this man that just got up after many hours? To immediately fall back to the earth. It was because Ezra was in disbelief that they were going to offer. They were actually going to offer the evening sacrifice as if everything was all right between them and God. And he just could not believe. They were capable of doing that. My God. Just like these people knew how to offer the evening sacrifice, we know all the right expressions. We know all the things to say and when to say them. We know all the words now to all the songs that that are put on the screen for us. We know just how to act Pentecostal and how to act holy. We know how to go through the motions. And if you've had the Holy Ghost for a while, you even learn how to speak the language that the Spirit of God speaks through you. My God. My God. And Ezra says in verse 6, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blessed to lift up my face to thee. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up under the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to a confusion of face, as it is this day. And now Ezra prays for a little space. Grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. What was Ezra doing here? Ezra was leading the people in the prayer of repentance. There were those that still trembled at the reading of God's law. And he was leading anyone that would follow him in a sincere, heartfelt prayer of repentance. My God. In the 15th verse, he says, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. For we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Ladies and gentlemen, the first thing that you discover when you unwrap the gift of grace is 
the gift of repentance. When you unwrap the grace of God, the first thing you find is the gift of repentance. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. True repentance is a result of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. You can preach the end of the world, but that won't lead you to repentance. I'm sorry the world's going to end. That's not the same kind of sorry that will lead you to repentance. It takes godly sorrow. The Greek word for godly is kata, and it simply means down from a higher place to a lower place. So we might be sorry for a lot lot of reasons. I'm sorry I'm broke. I'm sorry I'm sick. I'm sorry my marriage failed. I'm sorry I'm in trouble. I'm sorry for a lot of different reasons, but until that sorrow comes from him and pierces your heart, you're sorry for all of the wrong reasons. And I'm going to tell you here today, the reason why I believe that some people go through the motions and the practice of repentance, but they do not change is because they're not sorry to God. They're sorry for other reasons, but they're not sorry from God. And Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson. He's not diminishing the importance of sin. He's not underselling how bad sin is. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as snow, and they shall be as wool. Repentance is not negotiating with God. Just because he said, come on, let's talk it over. Let's reason together. It doesn't mean he's inviting you to negotiate with him over your lifestyle or over the way that you're living. no place in the Bible that gives us permission to renegotiate our contract with God. Repentance is not a diplomatic or tactical response to a holy God. Repentance is not an apology for bad or unacceptable behavior. Many of us has apologized Numerous times through the years for things that we repeated because apologies is not the same thing as repentance. I heard it said when I worked at Builder Square years ago when we opened the the store in Fort Myers. I found out that it's said everywhere in all different kinds of places, but it was said then that it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. And that might work in the corporate world, but it doesn't work with God. An apology to God, no matter how sincere it may be, 
will never yield genuine fruits of repentance. Of course, John the Baptist realized that they were insincere people that came out to hear him preach that also wanted to get in the water and get baptized. But he told them to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, and then I will baptize you. True repentance will have a profound effect upon every aspect of your life, and it will yield notable fruit that will be recognized by those who know you and who are around you. You will walk different. You will talk different. You will act different. You'll have a different attitude. You'll have a different spirit. There'll be something different about you. I've already mentioned reconnecting with a good friend that I went to school with and how I uh, had a business in uh, Fort Walton Beach. I went to work for him, and we met up with him this uh, last October. Hadn't seen him in 45 years. And he sat there and told me something that I scratched my head. He said, after you started going to church less, he said, the guys came to me and said, when is less going to stop preaching to us? I don't remember preaching to anybody. But when you really get right with God, everybody will know it. Your life will reflect it. It won't just be a testimony. It will be by your actions and by your behavior and by your vocabulary. Second Corinthians 7:11 for behold this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort listen to it what carefulness it wrought in you yea what clearing of yourselves yea what indignation yea what fear yea what vehement desire yea what zeal yea what revenge in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. When Nathan pointed his bony finger in David's face while David sat in a position of power and authority, and the prophet had no authority as far as political authority goes, but he said, David, you're the man. You're the man. And it finally struck David. It finally entered his heart and soul and mind what Nathan the prophet was talking about. David repented of the sins of murder and of adultery. But he sought more than just absolution. You see, sometimes all we're looking for is a pass. All we're looking for is God let me off the hook. That is not repentance. The king was mortified. He was ashamed before God. He was disappointed in himself that he was able to do so wickedly. And he cried out to God for repentance. He cried out to God for God's forgiveness. I don't think he had any expectations about staying in the throne. It wasn't the idea. It's just, I got it. I got to find God's forgiveness for the terrible and wicked things that I have done. This is the effect that godly sorrow will have upon you and upon me. 
So when David cried out for forgiveness, he also pleaded with God, don't just wash the record clean. Don't just absolve me of my sin, but create in me, O God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Repentance is not just about clearing or rending ourselves of guilt and condemnation. It's about fixing what is broken on the inside and removing that thing permanently from our lives that separates us from God. It's about understanding how we have personally disappointed and grieved the heart of God. I suppose that those that lived before Calvary looked at things a little bit differently, but we are post-Calvary people, and now we look back to a God that was willing to robe himself in flesh because I was a sinner, because I cursed and used profanity, because I had an ungodly, unclean mind, because I was rebellious in my spirit. He said, the only way I can fix that man is to come in the flesh and die, take his judgment for him and die in his place. You think that's not supposed to have an effect upon us? That's the godless sorrow that Paul is talking about. And so in Genesis 6, 5 and 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. I never want God to be sorry that he bought me out of sin. I never want God to regret the day he led me to an altar of repentance into the waters of baptism or the day he filled me with his spirit. So we repent not just because of what will happen to us if we don't but we repent because our sins have grieved the heart of Almighty God and because our Lord was willing to die on the cross so that we would not have to suffer the eternal judgment for the lives that we lived. So repentance is the gift that comes wrapped in God's grace. And when you unwrap the gift of repentance, you discover this wonderful thing called forgiveness. Paul wrote to the Rome, to some in Rome, and he wrote to them because they did not necessarily view repentance in a positive manner. They did not view repentance as a gift. They viewed it as a form of religious entrapment. Religious entrapment, yeah. He's trying to trap me. So he said to them in Romans 2 and 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? I want that to sink into your soul for just a moment because when we're exposed to the goodness of God and we don't take advantage of it, or we spurn it, or we dismiss it, or we despise the riches of his goodness and his forbearance, and long-suffering. You have no idea what God has put up with me. 
You have no idea what God has put up with me to let me live and, and keep the truth in my mind and heart up to this day. You think I'm going to stand here and despise his forbearance and long-suffering with me? No way. I am so grateful and thankful to God he could have flipped me off like that, thrown me into the potter's field, broken and charred, but he didn't. He said, I'm going to weigh a little bit on this guy. I think he's going to come around. I think he's going to receive my, my grace. I think he's going to pray and get right with me. After the hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. But then there's an addendum upon this. For his mercy endureth forever. Under the Mosaic law, the glory of God resided behind the veil in the holiest of holies, of course, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Everywhere the glory went, mercy went with it. Everywhere the glory went, you never found God's mercy seat separated from his glory. Now, the glory of God, as you well know, is unapproachable by man or by human means because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God made provision for us. He attached a mercy seat on top of the glory. So when we we accept and take advantage of his mercy and we repent, that's when the glory of God is revealed. My God. Without regular seasons of heartfelt and intense repentance. It is very easy for us to become a revolving door for spirits. Very easy to become a revolving door for spirits. My God, come now. Let's reason together. Let's be reasonable. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you will just... Receive the gift of repentance. The tearing of one's garments, as Ezra did, signified true sorrow and turning to God because once the garment is torn, like Brother Locke taught earlier, once you break the alabaster box, it's done. You don't put the stuff back in the box. The box is destroyed. It's broken in pieces. So once the garment is torn, you can't fix it again. It signified that when you repent, you've got to tear something that can't be repaired. You've got to rip something up that cannot be put back together. You have to rent it in such a way 
that you will never be able to put that back on and wear it again. And that is the real object of repentance. That's what repentance is all about. I don't want to just make this thing in me sick so it lies dormant for a few days. I want to kill this thing in me so that it will never rise up again. It will never take life again. It will never steal from me again. Of course, the rending and the tearing of one's garment, as with all things that become ceremonial, became the ritual among God's people, and it was not always accompanied by deep, sincere, and inner change as a result of contrition. It was just, look at me, I'm renting my garment. Look at me, I'm tearing my mantle. And that's all that it was. So the prophet Joel addressed this in Joel chapter 2. Wherefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. So the object is that once you have rent your heart, it cannot return to its original state of sin. It's like when they tow your vehicle in after an accident and they say, this is beyond repair. We can't fix this. This is unfixable. Reaching very near close, Isaiah 6, beginning in verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, very tumultuous time in Israel's history, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You try to get somebody that's seen this to repent. You try to get somebody that just had a dream or a vision from God to admit that there's sin in their life. Just because God speaks to you and shows you stuff does not mean that there's nothing in your life because if there was nothing, then you would be perfect. Above the throne stood seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain or with two of those wings he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. That's the angel. And the house was filled with smoke. And what was Isaiah's response to all of this? Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone.
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Something happened at this point. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth. And lo, this hath touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. First of all, the angel laid this red-hot coal directly upon the lips of the prophet. Why didn't he lay it on his shoulder, on his elbow, on his stomach, on a leg, on a foot? He laid it on the place that needed cleansing. He put it where it was needed the most. The prophet said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim, while Isaiah is saying that, he's thinking in his mind. While he's saying, holy, 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 unto the Lord of hosts, he's thinking, I know exactly what he needs me to do. Repentance does not make excuses. Repentance does not divert attention from self to some one or to someplace else. Repentance gets to the root and the cause of sin. Repentance is a shovel that digs in the dirt of our soul until it reaches the very thing that's causing us to sin against God. And you dig and you dig and you dig until you find it. Repentance tears and it rends the flesh. Repentance attacks the strongholds in our lives. Strongholds that we're unable to break on our own. It pushes back the forces of evil so that God can work. And it says when you come back looking for this, it'll be gone, it'll be dead. Because I'm going to put it on the red hot coals of God's altar. Repentance removes the need for secrecy in your life. But that's not all. When you think about the seraphim that broke away from his worship, reason that he was created to do what he what we read about in this chapter the seraphims were incredible creatures I'm not a student of angels there's a ton of stuff on angels leave it alone but then if there's some apostolic stuff go ahead and read that but everything else leave it alone so I don't know a lot about angels I'm going to talk about them in a, in a few weeks a little bit. But seraphims were incredible creatures, and they were angelic. I mean, they can go where they want to go. They fly. They don't get sick. They don't feel pain. 
we don't die, we don't get old. And yet, this seraphim could not pick up this red-hot coal with his hands. He had to go, and this is also fascinating to me, there were tongs nearby. Picked up a pair of tongs and grabbed the hot coal from off of the altar. Even there, there was an altar with fire upon it. And he carried that red hot coal in these tongs and laid it on Isaiah's lips. Now, if the angel cannot touch the coal, what do you think it did to Isaiah? I'm talking about repentance. I'm talking about getting into a place where God gives you a covering of his blood over things that we're embarrassed about, behavior we're ashamed of. Repentance is not a series of warm compresses. The angel didn't come over and massage his shoulders a little bit, causing him to relax. Repentance is radical. It's violent. He will not give up until it gets an answer from God. Submitting ourselves to the fire of God. The fire of God. Our God is a consuming fire. And we accept the reality of what we bring to the fire is not going to go home with us. It's not going to live in us anymore. It's not going to tempt us anymore. It's not going to rise up and reclaim its place anymore. The fire of God is for a reason. Nadab and Abihu brought in strange fire. Any fire used within the tabernacle had to come from the altar. They brought fire from outside. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's religious fire. Religious fire is for demonstration only. We need to be careful that we do not just demonstrate in the altar, but we really repent in the altar. So how do I know? You will know because you will be different on the inside. I have struggled with this for days. God dealt with me about the parable of the, the wheat and the tares. And, and when it was explained, he said, you got to leave the tares alone because the tares are sown among the wheat and they're people that are sent into the churches by Satan to disrupt and to slow down the spiritual progress of the church and to hinder the operation of the Holy Ghost. I struggled with this for weeks and weeks because you got to know something. In every church, there are tears. There were people that got up when I walk to the pulpit to preach because they will come here for worship, but as soon as I get up to preach, they always go out the door. Every single time, every single time. I want to know that I'm not a tear, that I am a wheat. And how can you possibly know? It's when you repent and you get up from the altar, changed on the inside. 
religious fires for demonstration only. It doesn't purge anything. It doesn't cleanse anything. But holy fire changes and alters everything that it touches and comes in contact with. Musicians, would you please come? The Bible speaks of washing and cleansing. There's the washing and renewing of the Holy Ghost, and that's wonderful. We need to continue to allow God to wash and cleanse us, but there's some things that has to be submitted to the fire. What God wanted Isaiah to do would require a greater anointing. And I want you to see this, everyone in this room. In order for Isaiah to receive a greater anointing, he had to acknowledge sin in his life, and the angel had to lay the coal from the altar that was before God upon his lips. And after he was cleansed of that is when his anointing came upon him and he was able to go. He said, Lord, send me. And now you're ready. Now you're ready. The way to a greater anointing always leads to an altar. Always. Did you know that the Bible relates forgiveness with healing? When the Lord directed me down this particular path uh, for today, I've had many questions. And I was somewhat reluctant, uh, but God kept dealing with me, and I kept digging and digging because healing and forgiveness are not unrelated. That's not to say that um, we're sick because of sin in our lives. We live in a world that's immoral, and it will have profound spiritual effects upon those that live in that immoral world. So the same blood that cleanses from sin also heals us of our infirmities. As portrayed by Isaiah 53 and 5, but he, that being Jesus, of course, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. Before he ever was nailed to the cross, Jesus was shedding his blood for our healing. He started shedding his blood in the praetorium when he was scourged by Roman soldiers. And by those stripes, that could have been and should have been completely unnecessary. He could have went to the cross and shed his blood for our sin. They said, no, my people are going to get sick. Their infirmity is going to come upon them. They're going to find themselves arrested by disease and things that they cannot escape from. And so before they nail me to the cross, I am going to let them scourge me with stripe because from those wounds will come blood. And with that blood, I am going to heal my people. Yeah. 
The dynamics created by the Spirit of God that brings about the miraculous and healing is very unique. The Bible says in Mark chapter 16 that there will be signs that will follow them that believe. And one of those signs is they shall lay hands upon the sick and they shall recover. We automatically go to get better, to get over the sickness. But if you study it out, the word recover has far more deeper implications. The word recover is not just recover from the disease or the pain or the sickness, but they're going to recover everything that they lost because of their pain and because of their sickness and because of their disease. The dynamic of healing also includes the scripture that says, Pray ye one for another that ye may be healed. But we can't do that. The Lord has shown me we can't do that because we don't love one another. We don't love deep enough. We're too judgmental and we're too cynical and we're too quick to get angry and to point out everybody's faults. And as God was dealing with me, he led me to 1 Corinthians 13 as I began to read it. I said, God, I am not loving that way. Though we speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if you don't have charity, you're nothing but a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass in heaven. Hell might enjoy you, but heaven thinks that you stink. We don't love one another. You can be sure. God's been carving on me, and I've been working on that. And not near there yet, not near. But it leads us to a place in the dynamics of the miraculous where God performs healing and forgiveness at the same time. James chapter 5, is any sick among you? Let me ask it this way. Is there anybody here that isn't sick? Is there anybody here that has absolutely no pain anywhere in your body? Are there any babies here? What should the sick people do? Let him call for the elders of the church. We don't do this either. People come forward. We know they need prayer. We get out the oil and we anoint them. But not here and not today. We're going to obey the word today. Call for the elders of the church. Who are the elders? It's not just the old men. It can refer to old men, but it's talking about generally bishops, pastors, older ministers, older deacons. And so I'm going to call the elders of the church. 
I have four bottles of oil. My wife said, make sure you bring them home. And we have a fifth. I'm going to call upon the elders. Pastor, Brother Locke, I need Brother Simmons, and I need, is Brother Khan still here? I need Brother Khan to come in from his vestibule duties. That will be five elders. Brother Simmons, I want you and Brother Khan to join me on the platform. God has given me very clear and specific instructions what we are to do. And then what should the elders do? We've missed this up too. We really have. It says, let them, that's the elders, pray over him. That's the sick person. Do what? Pray over them. You mean not for them? No, 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 no. Pray over them. Because when you pray over them, you're going to release something. And what you release is going to be what the sick person needs. Pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, of course, which is Jesus. So the language of the Bible is very concise. We're not going to pray for you. We're going to pray over you. We're going to pray something over you. We're going to cover you with something. Woo! Woo! Ha-ha! Ha! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Glory to God. But here is where it really gets interesting. Because it says, and the prayer of faith that is prayed over them will release the power and virtue of God to heal. We don't have to ask him to heal. We don't have to name the infirmity. We just got to pray faith over you. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. But then something else happens as the prayer of faith is being prayed over the sick. It says that the Lord will save the sick. Will save. Go study it out. The connotations is far more reaching to just save them from their pain or from their disease or from their infirmity. The Greek word for save is sozo, and it means a wide range of things. It means saved, delivered, made whole, preserved, safe from danger, from loss, or from destruction. And sickness is not the only thing causing that. Then it says, and the Lord shall Igero raise him up. My God, do you understand that that creates an atmosphere of the supernatural? And all it's doing is the elders are just praying a prayer of faith over 
somebody and it is releasing all of this in the sanctuary. But here's the part that is so phenomenal to me. And it is something I think that is always overlooked. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. He doesn't have to ask for forgiveness. And there's a reason for that. I'll, I'll, I'll fix this in a moment. He doesn't have to pray for forgiveness. He doesn't have to repent for any sins that's in his life as the elders pray the prayer of faith over him and anoint him with oil. If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, I'm going to invite you to come that want the elders to anoint and pray the prayer of faith over you. But here is the caveat. Here's the catch. If you're going to receive what the elders are going to pray over your life, you must come with a humble heart and a humble spirit. You must come in full submission to the word of God and you must come in full submission to the authority of the elders. That's the contingency. If you will submit to God, to his word, you will come humbly and submit to the authority of these elders. God is going to release you. God's going to set you free. And he's going to lift you up. And you're going to walk out of here a different man, and a different woman. Stand to your feet with me. The same blood that cleanses from sin heals us. I'm going to ask each of these men to take one of these bottles of oil. I initially, I thought, you want to just do a prayer line. God said, no, I don't want that. So if you're sick, if you want an elder to anoint you and pray over you, I want you to just make a line across this auditorium. Make a line across the auditorium. Stand shoulder to shoulder. Don't stand behind anybody because we're just, if you're in the front, we know you, you want the elders to anoint you and pray over you. And that's what we're going to do. Think about what you're doing. We don't want to despise the long-suffering and forbearance of God. We don't want to rend the outward part and the inward part remain sinful and rebellious against God. It's not just that we need healing. We need cleansing. We need forgiveness. Oh, what a need. Oh, what a need. Oh, what a need. Come on, God is in this place. Holy Ghost is among us. And I want these elders now to start. Just go out. Start down on the end. Go to 
Just the different ones. You may not anoint everybody, but you're going to anoint somebody. Brother Congo on this side. You may not anoint everybody. Every elder will not pray over you. But Brother Locke, come on down here a little bit. Brother Locke, come on down here. Come on down in here. Come on. Phil's got that area. Come on down here and work your way to the center. Come on, anoint them with oil and pray a prayer of faith. Releasing, releasing, releasing God's power. The prayer of faith. Releasing his virtue. The prayer of faith. Come on, faith that casts mountains out of our way. Faith that binds devils. Faith that casts sycamore trees. Faith that removes every obstacle. Come on, pray over them. The prayer of faith. Release that faith. Come on, you've got authority. Come on, elders, you got authority. These people are submitting themselves to your authority. And so is the spirit world. Infirmity is in submission to the authority of the elders right now. Faith is being released. Come on, we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. It is the beginning of revival. It's the beginning of a move of God. Come on, the Bible talks about gifts of healing. But when we do this, we're releasing the gift of forgiveness.
Come on, let's thank God for what he's doing. Come on, let's exalt him. He knows what we need and when we need it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This is the breaking that we need. <laughs> 